There are two things that are out of the ordinary in this story that we read, in the setting of this story. One of them is that Jesus in this story was in Jerusalem. Understand, first of all, Jerusalem is the city in the nation of Israel. It is the place to be. And, but understand, Jesus did not live in Jerusalem, and Jesus didn't do most of his preaching in Jerusalem. To be in Jerusalem was a big, special event for any person that didn't live there. And Jesus didn't live there. Jesus did most of his preaching out in the country. He did most of his preaching in the small towns and the villages. But he had come to Jerusalem for a feast, an event. And so that's the first unusual thing about this story. The second unusual thing about this story is that the Jews, for the most part, they did, they took care of their business and lived their lives outside of their houses from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. I mean, the day started at 6 a.m. and the day ended at 6 p.m. And so, anytime you read in the Bible that, uh, oh, about the fourth hour of the day, that's the fourth hour after 6 a.m. So, we're talking 10 o'clock in the morning. And so the, the structure of the day was 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. This story happened after 6 p.m. Well, what was, what was Jesus doing out? Well, Jesus spent a lot of the nighttime in prayer. And so it was not unusual for Jesus to be out. But in the daytime, in the light of day, that's when he would preach. That's when he would heal people. That's when he would help people. But at night, everyone went home so there wouldn't be a lot of people to preach to. Nobody's in the marketplace. Nobody's walking down the street at night. Everybody's home after 6 o'clock. So Jesus would use that time to go out and find a quiet place like, like in, when he was in Jerusalem. It says many times he would pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. He didn't just pray that once before he died. He prayed many times, the Bible says, that uh, in fact, when Judas wanted to bring the soldiers to arrest Jesus, he knew where Jesus would be. Because in the evening, when we're in Jerusalem, Jesus, after dark, is going to be down there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so maybe that's where Jesus was going here. I don't know. But it's after dark. Everybody's home. And so Jesus' natural habit was to find a place in the dark and pray, talk to his heavenly father. So those are the two unique things about this story, about the setting of the story. So Jesus is out after dark, finding a place to pray, and he's walking along in the darkness. Nobody's around because everybody's home now. It's after six, and he's walking along, and he hears, Psst. and he looks around, and out of the shadows comes not a homeless man, not a beggar, but somebody that you would never expect to see coming out of the shadows in after 6 o'clock. He sees a man dressed in very expensive clothes. And this man is one of the best respected men in Jerusalem. He is in this religious group called the Pharisees. 
And the Pharisees were very impressive to, to look upon, and they carried themselves with, themselves with class. They were very educated men. Now, they rejected Jesus, and so they weren't, the, as far as their faith goes and, and even their living, Jesus called them, in some places he called them, as a group, he called them hypocrites. And uh, so Jesus was not real fond of them as a group because of what they stood for. But they were very respectable to see. I mean, can, can you imagine walking down a, a back alley downtown and you turn a corner and uh, there's a guy in a suit and tie? I mean, probably that's going to happen. It's going to be me. You know what I mean? You're going to say, oh, pastor, what are you doing down? Because I know that because when I, when I walk in back alleys and so forth in my suit and tie, I get some pretty funny looks. And so, uh, but, but that, that's essentially what's happening here. Jesus is walking down a path looking for a place to pray, and he hears, and he turns, and out of the shadows comes this very impressive man. Now, why was he hiding? Because the Pharisees couldn't stand this new young preacher named Jesus. And if this guy who was a Pharisee, if he ever was discovered talking to Jesus, he'd get in a lot of trouble. And so he's hiding. And Jesus said, uh, what can I help you? So my name is uh, Nicodemus, and obviously I'm one of the Pharisees. And he said, I just have a question for you. I've been trying to figure this out. Now listen, let me, let me say this before I give you his question. He's, the, guys, the, the, the people that God reveals himself to are the people who asks ask the difficult questions. If all you do, you know, you watch TV and some guy's on there and he's answering questions about science or about God and on the bottom it says, expert. And he says, oh yeah, I'm, you know, I've, I've been a, science, I t- a scientist, I teach at such and such university and I'm telling you, there can't possibly be a, guy, a God. And you go, all right, That's why I believe, because the expert said it. God's never going to show you a thing. But if you look at that, or by the way, you look at that, and then you hear me talk. And you hear me say, let me tell you something, there has to be a God. You're insane if you think there's no creator. You're insane if you think that there's all this order and all of this predictability and everything that this is the intricate details of creation. If you think there's no creator, you're out of your mind. So you hear me say that and then you see this guy on TV and it says, expert, professor. And he says, there could not possibly be a God. And you look at both of them and you say, how do I know who to trust? How do I know who's telling the truth? When you are willing to ask that question, hey, wait a minute. This guy says one thing. This guy says a, another thing. And they both sound very believable. How do I know what the truth is? You have just begun to ask the big questions. Don't stop asking those big questions. Can I tell you this? Don't believe something just because I say it. See, I have enough confidence in God and heaven to teach everyone. The Bible says he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So you hear me say, hey, this is God's book, and every book, every word in this book came from God. You can count on it. You can trust it. You say, and then you hear somebody else say, uh, <clears throat> the Bible's just like any other book. In fact, 
the Bible, I mean, it doesn't even deserve, it's a book of fables and stories and, and uh, myths. And you say, well, both of them sound credible. Both of them are nice guys. I hope you think I'm a nice guy. Both of them are nice guys. How do I know who to believe? God will show you. That's when you're asking the big questions. I want to know. I want to believe the truth. Do you know why I say to you so confidently everything that I say? That Jesus is the Son of God. God created the world. The Bible is the Word of God. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus rose for that. I say all those things with absolute confidence. You say, how can you be so confident? Because when I was about 14, 15 years old, I started asking the big questions. I said to the Lord, God, now I'm convinced that you're there. I just, I can't, I can't even imagine that you're not there because th- th- this is impossible. I'd already pondered the matters of creation and, and this world and science and, and already pondered all those things. And, and I, there's no way, in my opinion, I decided there's no way that you're not there. But this I know. I was raised in a Bible-believing Christian home. And that could be that that's why I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that the Bible is the Word of God, that, that, and all these things that I was raised to believe. It could be that the reason I believe these things is because I was raised to believe them. I said, Lord, I suppose, and I'm telling you, I prayed these things to God when I was 13, 14, 15 years old. God, I believe these things with all my heart, but I could be, it could be, that it's just because I was raised this way. It could be that if I was raised in a Mormon home, I'd be a Mormon. It could be that if I was raised in a Buddhist home, that I'd be a Buddhist. And so I don't want to believe them just because I was raised to believe these things. I want to know the truth. And I said, God, and I'm telling you, I prayed this many times in that period. God, I will be whatever you teach me to be. If you teach me to be a a Mormon, Buddhist, Jehovah's Witness, whatever, if you teach me that that's what's true, that's what I'll be. And I sought the Lord with all my heart. I read his word with that in mind. And uh, be honest with you, a few minor things I changed about what I had been raised to believe. But 98% of what I was raised believing... God just confirmed it for me, that it was true. So, but don't you believe what I say just because I say it? Seek the Lord for yourself. And that's what Nicodemus was doing. Nicodemus says, you know what? I hear my Pharisee friends say one thing, and I was raised in their schools, and I was taught their doctrine, and I hear them say one thing, and then I see there's this, this guy going around town and preaching a different message. They're preaching that you are saved by your good works. This guy is preaching that you're supposed to believe on him. And, and he's doing these miracles. And that's what really seemed to get Nicodemus is that he is, he is making blind people see. He is making deaf people hear. He is making lame people walk. And so he comes to Jesus by night. And he gets Jesus' attention in the dark as Jesus is walking down the street. And he says, uh, I just can't figure it out. Because 
my friends tell me that you're not of God. We've had meetings to they made it very clear this guy's not of God. But I gotta tell you, I I I believe you're of God because I've known blind people that can see now. I know somebody who was deaf and now he can hear. I know that what I'm seeing is real. It's not make believe, it's not a trick. And that he leaves it right there. And all he's basically said to Jesus is. I'm confused. And the first thing that Jesus says is, except a man be born again. Now look, if you live in America, you've heard that phrase before, born again. Jimmy Carter got elected president back in the late 70s just by throwing that word out and saying, I'm born again. By the way, as far as I can tell, I think he was. But it really, I remember very vividly, I was only nine years old, but I was paying attention to politics already, I promise you. And, and I remember vivid, I was paying attention in church, and I was paying attention to politics, and I remember vividly thinking, now, most people have never heard that phrase before. And he's talking about being born again. And it, all of a sudden, it became a, a, it had like a renewed, got a renewed tension in our culture. People were talking about Jimmy Carter says he's born again, and so forth, and so if you live in America, and since then it has been pretty much a part of, people have heard that phrase before. But understand, Nicodemus had never heard that phrase before because right here in this story is where Jesus introduces this phrase to the world. So Nicodemus has said, Master, teacher, sir, my folks say that you're not for real. You're, you're not genuine. You're not authentic. But I'm looking at what you do, and it seems to me that you are from God. And right away, Jesus said, listen, except a man be born again. Let the phrase sink in. Instead of just, you know, born again, like, you know, we just spit things out. We get used to hearing, we're born again. Uh, think about it. Unless you're born again. None of this is going to make sense to you. He said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And yes, that means going to heaven, but I think it also means seeing it as in it making sense to you. It's never going to make sense to you until you are born again. What? And I, I wouldn't be surprised if Nicodemus even laughed right there. <laughs> I... <laughs> I have to be born again? How can a man be born again? And Jesus goes on. Actually, this is not going to be the focus of, our, of what we're going to talk about for the next few minutes. But in the course of their conversation, Jesus finally comes to this explanation. And he, he makes, Jesus gives Nicodemus a statement that becomes one of the most famous statements in the history of humanity about how to be born again. He said, listen, Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, this is, this is Jesus talking, that's why I pointed to me, I'm not him, his only begotten son that whosoever, anybody, whosoever believes in 
his only begotten son shall not perish but have everlasting life. The key word in that verse as far as what causes you to be born again is the word believe. That's the action that causes a person to be born again. So Jesus is telling Nicodemus about an event, an event that has to happen in your life if you are going to see the kingdom of God, if it's going to make sense to you on this earth and if you're going to go there when you die. You have to believe on Jesus whom God sent to this earth to die for our sins. Now, the Bible in this story does not tell us precisely whether or not Nicodemus got saved, but there is an event that happens later on that pretty much implies that he did believe on Jesus. But the focus here is not Nicodemus, not this morning. Our focus is on the fact that Jesus said there's got to come a time when you are reborn. And that happens when you decide to believe on Jesus. Now, there are people in this room who have been born again for over 50 years. There are people in this room who have been born again for less than a month. And then the rest of us are somewhere in between. What I want to talk about to, with you this morning for just a few more minutes when you believe on Jesus, you spend the rest of your life growing, becoming more like him. There's a lot of things that take a long time to happen. But there are some things that happen immediately. The moment you made the choice to believe on Jesus, there's a bunch of things that happened immediately. And I want to tell you very quickly, 12 things. Oh, no, 12 things. We're never going to have lunch. We're never going to get out of here. 12 fast things, all right? 12 fast things that happened the moment you believed on Jesus, all right? So if you have believed on Jesus, these things are true of you. If you have not believed on Jesus, oh, man, don't go home today without, without making that choice. But let me talk, first of all, to you. Say, yeah, yeah, I, you know, I don't, I don't understand it all yet. Well, good. I've been, I got saved when I was 14, and I, I'm 50 now, and I still don't understand it all. You spend the rest of your life learning it and coming to understand it. But I'm going to tell you 12 things right now from the Bible that happened as soon as you decided to believe on Jesus. Number one, all of your sins were immediately forgiven. Listen to Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he, God, removed our transgressions from us. Now, here's what's cool about that. If the Bible had said as far as the north is from the south, those would be fixed points. Because the north pole is a fixed point, the south pole is is a fixed point. And so wherever else you were on the globe, you would, your distance from your sins would always be a, a fixed point away from you. Do you get that? But he said the east is from the west. You know there's no east pole, there's no west pole. 
So your sin is, if I could say it this way, by this verse, your sin is always a world away from you. The number number one of the things that I'm going to give you that happened the moment you believe on Jesus, all of your sins were forgiven. Now I should say this. If you committed some sin before you were saved that carried consequences with it, you may still have to face those earthly consequences. All right, if you, uh, I don't know, just some crazy, stupid thing. If you did something wicked, sinful, horrible, and in the process, a finger of yours got cut off. All right, so the wicked thing that you did will forever be forgiven by God, but your finger's not going to grow back. Although a guy in Arkansas told me about uh, stem cell stuff that could have my foot grow back. I don't know about that, but anyway. um, But but, uh, that was a distraction. I shouldn't have said that. The fact is the circumstances that the human circumstances that are the result of your sin are not all going to be cured when you believe on Jesus. But as far as you and God go, all of your sins are immediately forgiven. Let me go to the next one. And by the way, every one of these 12 could have weeks and weeks and weeks of sermons preached on them. So there's no way we're going to hit all that and still get out in time for lunch. So we're going to put it in a capsule. And if you find you have a question about one of these, ask me. I'd be glad to tell you what, what the Bible says about it. All your sins are forgiven. Secondly, this is so awesome. Not only are all your sins forgiven, but God stops writing down your sins when you commit them. Do you know that before you got saved, God has people keeping very careful track, not people on earth, angels in heaven, keeping very careful track of every one of your sins. Date, time, place, sin. When you got saved, all of that got ripped up and thrown away. And God stopped writing down the sins that you commit. Let me show you that from the Bible. Romans chapter 4, verses 6, 7, and 8. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven. Now that's the last point. That's your sins being forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So when you said, I take Jesus as my Savior, immediately God said, okay, tear out his pages, his sin pages, rip them up, put them as far away from him as possible, and don't write down any more more sins. Don't write down any new ones. That's pretty cool. Number one and number two are pretty cool there. All your sins are forgiven. God stops writing down your sins. Third thing that happened the moment you believed on Jesus is that God immediately began to see you as righteous. Yeah, that doesn't mean much to us because we're not super familiar with that word righteous, but you know what the best word that we have for it is the word perfect. Perfect by God's standards. Do you know that righteous is how God sees his own son, Jesus Christ? Flawless, no mistakes, no sins. He's perfect, he's righteous. The moment you believed on Jesus, that's how God the Father began to see you. Flawless. Probably say, yeah, but I'm not flawless. Yes, but you are hidden in Christ. Listen, the Bible says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God hath made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, 
that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. If you could imagine quickly a courtroom and there's someone on trial for, for, for murder, and I mean he has done so many horrible, wicked things that, that everybody agrees that man needs to die. And in the middle of the trial, someone in the jury, someone of good reputation, someone of, 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 of uh, upstanding citizen in the community, stands up and says, time out. I've got the judge's permission to trade places with that horrible, detestable, despicable man over there. And the juror stands up and walks over and says, we've got the, we've got the judge's permission to do that. I'm going to sit here and you're going to go sit over there. So now this man who everybody knows is worthy of death is now, he's just another juror. And this man who is just another juror is now worthy of death in the sight of everybody in the room. You say, I, I just can't even comprehend that. No, and to be honest with you, that wasn't even really as good an illustration as what really happened to us because we didn't just trade places with another juror. We traded places with the Son of God. When God saw Jesus on the cross, he saw our sins. He became sin for us. When God sees me now, he sees me as righteous as Jesus Christ. That began the moment you believed on Jesus Christ. Let me show you something else. Number four, your name immediately was written in the book of life. Revelation 20, 15, whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. Now, that's the negative right there, that whosoever was not found. But whoever is found in the book of life, and that's not the only place that the, the Bible talks about the book of life. It talks about it in a number of places. Whosoever is found in the book of life will live forever. And your name was written in the book of life. In fact, because of God's foreknowledge, the Bible says in Revelation that your name had already been written in the book of life. But it's official, it's confirmed the moment that you believe in Jesus Christ. Number five, the moment you believe in Jesus, I love this, the moment you believe in Jesus, you possess everlasting life. You own it. It's yours. And, by the way, that'll never change. It'll never be taken away from you. Now, if you don't agree with that, we don't have time to, to go into that right now, but I can show you clearly from the Bible, once you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you, that moment, have eternal life, and you can never lose it. Look at uh, John five twenty four. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, hath, that means has, everlasting life. That means you're not going to have everlasting life someday when you die. You have it now. You have it now. Everlasting life. You have it now. If you have believed on Jesus, you have everlasting life now. Let me show you number six because it's in the same verse. The moment you believed on Jesus, you passed from death to life. Listen to the rest of that verse. Uh, hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. There's one more confirmation that you can't lose it. Shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. 
When you believed on Jesus, God took you out of the dead category and put you into the alive category. You have passed from death to life. Number seven. Hey, we're halfway there. That's pretty good time. Number seven, and we, all, we began by talking about this, but I needed to put it on the list. You were born spiritually. This is our text, John 3, 6, and 7. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. So it's not talking about, and, and Nicodemus said this. He says, does that mean I have to go back into my mother's womb and be born a second time? No. It means that you were already born physically, but because of sin, you were spiritually dead. If you have never believed on Jesus, you are spiritually dead right now. But the moment you believe on Jesus, something's born in you. You are born spiritually. That leads us to the next one, number eight. The moment you believed on Jesus, God made you his child. John 1.12, as many as received Jesus, to them gave he... And by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm replacing the pronoun with the names of, of uh, God here just so we're clear because I am reading these, these uh, uh, verses separated from their context. So just to be clear, as many as received Jesus, to them gave he power, authority, that means authority to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So when you believe on Jesus, you immediately have the authority to say, I am a child of God. You see, there's this false idea, and you'll hear people say, well, well, it doesn't matter where, you know, what your religion, we're all God's children. I have bad news for you. That's not what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible says before you believed on Jesus, you were a child of darkness. The Bible says that before you believed on Jesus, you were a child of Satan. So I'm sorry, and I don't mean to, you know, I'm not a mean person, but we're not all God's children that because we live on the earth. But you are, you have the God-given authority to call yourself a child of God the moment you believed on Jesus. Hey, have you believed on Jesus? Then everything I'm showing you from the Bible is yours. It's yours. Next one. Number nine. Oh, we are cruising right along here. When I get to number 12, we're done. Hey, we're cruising. Number nine. When you believed on Jesus, God gave you, he put inside of you a new nature. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You have the moment you said, All right, I'm going to take Jesus as my Savior. The moment you made that decision... God gave you a new nature. Now, you have two, na two, two natures because the Bible clearly teaches that you still have your old nature. And the old nature is fighting the new nature. And the one that's going to win is going to be the one that you feed the most. But you have a new nature living inside of you. You have a new nature that the Bible says cannot sin. Now, your old nature can sin. 
but your new nature can't. So if you will learn to let the new nature be in control, you won't sin. <laughs> That's a lifelong battle. You will not be sinlessly perfect in this life, but the longer you live and the more you grow in Christ, you can get to the place where the new nature wins more than it loses. Number 10. The moment that you believed on Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, came to live inside of you. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. By the way, can I, every one of these scriptures is just one example of dozens of others for every one of these points that the Bible teaches what I'm showing you. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and ye are not your own. God, the Holy Spirit, comes to live inside of you. We leave here today, and you go to your house, and I go to my house. We will each take the Holy Spirit of God with us. What's the big deal about that? Because it, the Holy Spirit is the person of God that helps you to do all the things that you need to do. The Holy Spirit will teach you the Bible. The Holy Spirit who lives inside of you will teach you how to pray. The Holy Spirit who lives inside of you, he will show you when there's something that you're about to do that you shouldn't do. He'll remind you, hey, you're a Christian. You don't want to be doing that. You're a child of God. You don't want to be saying that anymore. You're, you're a child of God. You don't want to be going to that place. Anymore. You don't want to be drinking that anymore. You don't want to be smoking that anymore. Now, he's not going to do it all at once because, I mean, sometimes you get saved. Uh, when someone gets saved, there's such a drastic change. So many things need to be changed that the Spirit of God will do it gradually. But there comes a time that, you know what? You, you, you overcame that. Now it's time for me to let you know uh, you don't need to be going there anymore. That, that doesn't fit who, who you're becoming. The Spirit of God does all that. He encourages you. He brings things to mind that will that, that help you. All right, number 11. Number 11, the moment you believed on Jesus, you immediately had access to God in prayer. Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you know that before you believed on Jesus, there wasn't a single promise in the Bible that promised that God would answer your prayers before you believed on Jesus? Before you believed on Jesus, you could say, oh, Lord, please, you know, help me pay this bill. Now, he can if he wants to. God can do anything he wants to. But there's not a single promise in the Bible before you believed on Jesus that God was going to help you pay that bill. You, uh, you know, you've heard stories of people, they were in some, some near-death experience and they prayed and said, God, get me out of this jam and I will. And many times God answers that prayer. But there's nothing in the Bible that God obligated himself to hear and answer your prayers. Once you believe on Jesus, now he has obligated himself to hear and answer your prayers. And now he promises when you pray he will hear you. Last one. When you believe on Jesus, you are instantly in fellowship with Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 3. John the apostle said, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. 
And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. What does that, what does fellowship mean? I don't know of a better way to describe it than to say a friendship, a very close friendship. Okay. Does anyone here feel like, and don't be silly, in fact, don't even respond to it. Just answer for yourself. Does anyone here feel like that you have a legitimate right to say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm good friends with uh, LeBron James. Yeah, he, I can call him this afternoon. We'll talk for a while. Sometimes he calls me. No, you don't. Imagine if just all of a sudden, for some reason, out of the blue, you were granted friendship with maybe he's not your guy, but whoever you're, you know, basketball player or, or, or uh, uh, you know, football or baseball or maybe some singer, some actor, where you said, man, instantly you were granted friendship with that person. Really? You mean like I can call? Yeah, you can call anytime. You mean like if I want to, if we, if I want to do lunch, we can do. Yep, you give me a call, we'll do lunch. Are you kidding? Do you understand that before you believed on Jesus, you had no right to any of that with Jesus Christ? But immediately when you believe on Jesus, you do. You have a right to tell other people, "Oh, I, I know Jesus." Amen. <laughs> yeah. I have a friendship with Jesus Christ. All of that began. And by the way, we could do 10 times more. But those are 12 things that began the moment that you made the decision to bow your head and say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. And I know I deserve to be punished. But Lord, I don't want to go to hell. I believe Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross for my sins. And right now, I believe on him. I'm taking him as my Savior. Help me to live for you. Amen. Uh, the moment you did that, whenever it was, if it was last week, if it was a month ago, if it was 50 years ago, the moment you did that, all of those things began immediately. Now, maybe there's somebody here this morning who has never made that choice. And I'm begging you to not leave here today without making that choice. Now, when I just prayed right there, I was just giving you an example of somebody getting saved. But now we're going to do it for real. If you are here and you have never made that choice for yourself, I want to give you the opportunity to do that. If you have made Jesus your Savior, there is absolutely nothing wrong with telling him those things again. Do you know when I lead someone to Christ, when I lead someone in that prayer so that they're trusting Jesus for the first time, do you know in my heart I'm also praying that? I'm telling that to God, not, not, to, not because I'm worried that I'm not saved, but because I want to tell him as many times as I can. I want to confirm I'm trusting Jesus. I, I need to be reminded that I'm trusting Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you know that you're saved, you, you feel free to pray right along with us. But if you've never been saved, if you've never made that choice for the first time, I urge you to do it right now. Let's bow our heads together and let's talk to God. You heard the message from the Bible. God says we've all sinned. God says the, the sentence for sin is eternal punishment, eternal damnation. But Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross as our substitute. He was buried. He rose again. He conquered sin and death. And now God invites us to believe on Jesus for forgiveness and everlasting life. And with that knowledge, 
you simply have to make the choice to say, you know what? I'm a sinner. I'm going to reject my sin. I may still sin. I'm going to still goof up, mess up, but I'm turning my back on my love for my sin, my devotion to my sin. I'm letting go. And I'm turning to Jesus and I'm saying, okay, I accept your offer. I'm believing on you. If that's you today, you've never done that before, but you're going to do that today.